Acts chapter 9. So we're moving our way to the end. We only actually, to be honest, I think we have four more after this, if I'm right. Um, and we're going to look at now the place, our place in God's story and its relationship with persecution and Saul's conversion. So it's one of those big passages where Saul, who becomes Paul, writes most of the Bible, the New Testament, gets saved, and we're going to look at that. Okay, so Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither, and either, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, (laughs) Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell off his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Father, I pray that you would come and minister and teach and convict and change and shape us through the teaching of your word, that it would indeed be your voice we hear. And we do want to pray for your persecuted church around the world. Strengthen them, Father. Give them endurance. And enable them to persevere in hope that you will come and judge the earth and make things right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
so this is the passage of Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, and something happens when he meets Jesus, and he becomes converted, he gets saved, and he becomes somebody that's part of the church, rather than persecuting the church. Now, what I want to point out right off the bat, before I get into anything else, is to clarify something important. And I want to show it to you in verse 15 about what salvation means. Now, the Lord says to Ananias in verse 15, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to do this, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, because I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul here is converted and saved, and God says, I have a massive purpose in choosing Saul for salvation, because I'm going to send him to many people, the nations, to include into my plan of restoration, and along the way, in the process, he's going to suffer greatly. And this is what I want us to understand from Saul's salvation. Is that God did not save you so that you can go to heaven. Jesus did not hang on the cross and suffer and rise again three days later just so that you can have a happy afterlife. That is far short of what God did when He chose you and converted you and saved you and brought you into His church. Okay, your salvation, like heaven part of it, is a very small part of what He's up to. God is up to restoring the entire cosmos to what it is intended to be, like Eden, and everything in harmony with himself. And your salvation is but a small part in this grand plan God has for the universe. So Jesus did not go to the cross so that you can say, when I close your eyes to death, and say, yay, I go to heaven. He died... So that you could be incorporated into his story and have a role in participating in this grand restoration of the cosmos. So let me say that again. Your salvation is but a step to the bigger picture. It's not all about you. It's not all about I get to go to heaven. Because if it was, why are you not there this minute? So God has a story we've been looking at, and that's bringing people and creation back to Eden, back to himself, and you and I are saved. We enter into the church so that we can participate in this story, which happens to have the great ice thing on top that says, we'll be in Eden forever, heaven. 
But that's not the purpose of your salvation. It's not heaven. It's to participate. So, I want to review. Last week, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on the church to um, clarify what the story told you. And that is that when you are saved, what happens is, you are initiated into this community. And what happens is, God's presence comes and dwells within you. It's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of the restored Eden we're going to. Okay, Eden was great because God lived with man and creation was in harmony with God's kingship through his people. And the Eden, the heaven we're all going to is that restored place. And the Holy Spirit is the first fruit of that given to the Christians. So that we now know that there is a first down payment, a deposit of where we're going. The first fruits of Eden are now with us. So we have guarantee that we will be there. And as God led Israel through the wilderness on their way to Canaan. The Spirit is indwelling us and leading us through the wilderness of this present age until we get to our inheritance. We are all restored to Eden. So, um, when we inherit these first fruits of Eden in the Spirit, the Bible calls those people the church. That's what we are. Those who have the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of Eden, are called the church. And church... We are a community of restoration in the midst of a world of corruption. Or we're this group of life in the midst of a world of death. So glimpses of the Eden to come happen amongst us in the world. This place of death and corruption and curse, but blessing, restoration, and life, there's glimpses of that in us because of God's presence amongst us. So we are that. What we are is we are, in 9 verse 2, we're called, it says that Paul is going to go and persecute those belonging to the way. That is the first word for the church, for Christians, is the way. Because what God plans for the church to be is as we have the first fruits of Eden now, and we are moving towards the grand climax when God comes and restores all things to himself, we are the way to Eden. And God has chosen to use his church as that way so that all the exiles of the world see and follow. We're to call people to follow this way. So Eden hasn't come. Restoration hasn't happened yet. But the way has been established and we're going there. And we're to call people to follow us there. So, this is what the church looks like as we're doing this along the way. Jesus is our king. He's ascended to the throne of God. He rules over the earth through us. So, as we let Jesus rule us, he is beginning to extend his reign upon the earth around us. Um, We are the first fruits of restoration. So, it has begun with us and we're to make it spread and spread till it reaches the ends of the earth. 
you and I, taking up our part, our passion, our loves in life, and letting Jesus be king over those skills we have and letting it spread in each little pocket that we possess on this planet so that it continues to grow and we develop babies and families and they become restorers of the earth and the whole program keeps moving. We're the way until Jesus comes back. Okay, so that's kind of a summary of what the church is the first fruits of Eden are with us, the Holy Spirit, and we're to begin to develop and cultivate that garden-like presence in our midst today. But, here's where Saul comes in. That this way to a restored planet is happening through Christians enraged Saul to no end. Saul's a Jew. He's of Israel. And they and their religion of Judaism had their own story. Just a lot like ours, but a little different. Their story said, the world's a mess and God elected us to fix the mess. And when we can finally get it right, when we can keep His law perfectly, give or take, We can commit ourselves to keeping His law to a certain level. God will return and restore all the earth to us. And yes, some other people might be included. But now when Paul, Saul, Paul, you know guys, we'll mix it up. (laughs) He's the same guy. He realizes, wait a minute. These people, this, this, the way, this group of Christians, the church, are claiming that God's restoring all things through them, not through us, not through Judaism. And these people are denying that the purpose of the temple and Torah no longer are there, but they're now relocated in Jesus. That, that the purpose of Torah and temple are in Jesus now, and we don't need this building. We don't need these laws. And, and this was infuriating Paul because this means their story can't come to pass. So, and here's, and so what Saul does is he decides to go and kill or imprison Notice, just put an end to this movement of Christianity because they are ruining the story of Judaism. The hope of restoration will never happen as long as they exist. So Saul makes the fatal mistake, Judaism with him, that the church made in the, what is it, the medieval ages and the crusades. Whenever we try to take God and cram him into our plans and our story, it's a recipe for disaster. Saul and Judaism did it. And when there was the true movement of God resisting what they thought was God's work, they killed him. They forced violence on them. And that's what the church shamefully did during the Crusades. We didn't live God's story. We crammed him into our idea of what we're supposed to be doing. And people were killed. This is what Islam is doing. They're cramming God into their plans and their story. And violence is resulting. And this is what Judaism and Saul were doing. And so guys, it's a caution for us not to make a story, a plan for what life looks like, and then say, God, you fit here. 
Rather, it's to give all that up and to say, God, we fit in what you're doing. And had Saul done that, he would have been converted without killing Christians. So it's a caution for us, and it's a way to look back at the Crusades and realize what they did wrong. Um, so that's what Saul does. He does. He starts to kill the church in the name of God, thinking he's doing God's work. You can read in his epistles that he says that. I killed Christians because I was zealous for God. Well, you were just zealous for the wrong story of God. And so let's look at chapter 8, verse 1, and you'll see this sets up the scene for us of what's going on. In chapter 7, the first Christian dies. He's murdered by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. And Saul is there approving of this. He sees it. And in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Stephen's the guy that died. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's as if when Stephen was martyred, Saul smelt the first drop of blood. And like a shark, his hunting instincts were kicked on at the scent of blood. And he couldn't get enough. So now he goes to Jerusalem, house after house, hunting Christians down and putting them in prison. And somewhere else in Acts, he says that I also killed them. So some sort of violence is going on through Saul in which lives are being ended, families are being torn apart, and people are being persecuted. And so then you come to chapter 9, and Saul's so hungry, I did my job in Jerusalem, I can't find any more. He hunts up the highway to Damascus, which is up in Syria, the country above Israel, and he's looking for more Christians, and he's going to kill them and put them in prison too. And so he's on the way, in verse 1 it says he's breathing threats of murder. That's how much he hates these people. (laughs) Now... That's the persecution that happens. We saw this great story of God's beginning to restore his people in the church. He's poured out the first fruits of Eden. Restoration's happened. He's king. This great movement is happening. And now we come to this part in Acts and we think, this is a horrible story. God's people are being killed. They're being tortured. They're suffering. Their lives are being ruined. How is this part of God's story? And even today, if you look at the majority of the church around the world, they are going through the same experience. To claim yourself as a Christian is equal equal to saying, I want to die in many other countries. Whether it's government or other religions, there's violence and blood being shed. And we look at that and say, how is this God's people that they are continually dying and being killed and suffering at the hands of mere men? What place does persecution hold in God's story? Now, sometimes you guys are like, man, this is, I don't get it because in America... This portion of the church 
we haven't experienced this at all. We're like, big deal, persecution. We haven't, we haven't had to face up with what it means to die. So I think that what we need to do is understand God's purpose for persecution in His people so that when it comes for us... <laughs> We don't have to f- suddenly change our mindset and say, oh, oh, golly, what do we do? We're ready. And we see the purpose and we will no longer dread its coming, but we'll be ready to embrace our place in persecution as we see its purpose in God's story. Because I would not be surprised if in my lifetime we begin to see severe penalties afflicted upon us because of our beliefs. I don't know if we'll get to death yet or not, but I don't know that we have a whole lot of freedom left. I'm not saying tomorrow, but within my lifetime, I wouldn't be surprised if I have to, to some extent, suffer for the name of Jesus. And you guys are younger than me, so add it up. (laughs) We must understand why God has persecution in his story. So that when it comes, if it comes, when we see it, we don't have to scratch our heads and say, what the heck? But we understand and we can play our part. So here's three reasons I see persecution exists. Um, I'm looking at it from different perspectives. From the Satan perspective. Persecution exists... So that Satan can point to the problems in God's story. He wants you to see suffering and to see persecution and to think, well, I don't want any part of that. If that's what God's up to, quit it. And he wants us to look at it that way and say, let's just keep with the comfortable American dream and at all costs compromise so that our lives remain comfortable. That's why Satan loves persecution to an extent (laughs) if he does like it because he likes to see those who are in the church flee and say I quit he wants you to see God with great issues because he lets his people suffer from the neutral perspective you have people on this earth who are in opposition to the kingship of Jesus we don't want him to be king so they take it out on his servants who do hail him as king He's bad king, so we kill his bad people. Or at least make him suffer. And then the third is God's perspective on persecution. I propose that God purposes persecution for the progression of the gospel. God purposes persecution. You hear that word? Purposes He purposes persecution for the progression of the story of restoration to all people. Now, he's the author of this story. He's the king over us. Therefore, I do not say that God permits persecution. As if it was in his mind better it didn't happen, but I will allow it. I prefer we look at persecution as God's purpose to progress his story of restoration for creation and the nations. 
Now, how in the world does persecution progress restoration to people? Well, I think that there's two ways. And the first is that persecution expands restoration. The church could be this little pocket of people who hide in their walls and worship Jesus. But when persecution comes, you guys ever step step on an anthill? I used to do that all the time when I grew up in Orange. Oh, I would go hunt ants. It was so fun. I guess I was like Saul hunting down Christians. I just like rock smash them. I just thought I was like in the army, you know, like, there's the armies, get them. And then you find the anthill. It's like, oh, the mother base. <laughs> and you either throw a rock at it or step on it. And, you know, when you look at it, before you do any chaos, the answer is marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah, however it goes. And they're all going in and out. And then the rock comes down. <laughs> Two seconds later, they're like all in chaos, running around, spreading around, and going out everywhere. And that's kind of what Saul did to the church here, is that they're having their whole Pentecost moment, the first fruits of Eden, they've received it, the Spirit's there, they're worshiping, they're learning what this means to be this new community of life in the world of death. And then death caves in on them. And Saul starts wreaking havoc, and they're like the anthill that starts to disperse and go everywhere. The persecution was God's purpose of letting this whole restoration moment not just happen in the walls of Jerusalem, but to spread and expand to the ends of the earth. And we already read chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, but if you look back, you'll notice that that's exactly what happened. A great persecution arose, it says, and the disciples scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And eventually we know it gets to Damascus and other cities and to Rome and to the ends of the earth. God purposes persecution so that his restoration story expands. It moves. Now, I couldn't help but think that as you see Saul persecuting the church and the church dispersing and scattering I couldn't help but think this is kind of like the Tower of Babel again. You see, at Babel, men gathered to write their story. They were going to build this kingdom that neglected God and that was going to be their own man-made Eden where everyone would be happy and prosperous. But God came and scattered them into exile. Well... At Pentecost, we saw men gather, not under their story, but under God's story. And now the persecution comes and they scatter, not into exile, but to the exiles to bring them into God's story and be restored. So, there's a gathering and the scattering for the good, though, not for the bad, like a battle. This is for the good, because God is now expanding restoration to all peoples. Now, the reason that this is good is because how does, if persecution doesn't happen and expands restoration to everybody, what happens is we kind of get comfortable and cozy and we sit in our city or in our building and we forget God's story. We do. We forget all aspects of the gospel and we remember only the important aspects that apply to our comfortable American lives. 
Hence, you hear the gospel's all about Jesus dying and rising so that you don't go to hell forever. And we applaud that message and say, yes, praise God for fire insurance. And then you have these quabbles and people that don't seem to understand what grace means. Well, gee, if God freely forgives, and I could just go on sinning, and I'm still freely forgiven. And they think, this is just the greatest message ever. And we don't get it, because we've pulled out one little portion of his story, because we're comfortable and unpersecuted. But when persecution comes down upon the church, we are forced to remember the greater gospel, the greater story of God. And we realize that heaven is not the point. I wasn't saved so that I can just be in my comfortable American life and when I die, I go to heaven. I was saved to be pulled into this story and to work with God at bringing this restoration to everybody. All nations, all walks of life. And it makes us remember what we're meant to be. And guys... If persecution gets to come, gets to come, Paul said it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. If it gets to come to this church in America, two things will happen. First, it's one of those days, man. It's like the new dry, cold air. (laughs) We've got to adjust to it here. Uh, First, I need to start bringing tea on nights, I guess. First, we'll see a dramatic decline. Because some of you will buy into the Satan persecution story. Oh, see, God's story's bad. Get out. And you will do that. But second is that we will find the church as what it was really meant to be. We will find a dynamic of people participating in God's story in a community, supporting each other as if our lives depended on it. Because our lives will depend on it. And you guys will experience a Christian life far more exciting than what you've experienced in our comfortable, forgetting God's story, American church. So, yes, it's hard that, you know, the government's starting to take liberties away from the church and stuff. But honestly, as we look towards the future, it's somewhat exciting that we're going to get to fully engage in participating in God's story. So persecution expands restoration. But persecution, secondly, exhibits restoration. Exhibits it. It's an example. It shows it. Wait a minute. Restoration means coming back to Eden. Back to what we're meant to be, right? Yeah. Persecution, suffering death, is that the opposite of Eden? Yeah. (laughs) Then how does that exhibit restoration? We must remember that we are not in Eden yet. We are the way. We're going there. And along the way, we're giving the message. Now, the Bible says that you and I are the body of Jesus. So that means, look at, by the way, at verse 5. It says, um, and I thought this was interesting, that Jesus says... To Saul, well, Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, wait a minute. Saul hadn't seen Jesus up to this point. Saul wasn't actually taking whips and hitting Jesus. Saul wasn't taking Jesus and putting him in prison. So, how does Jesus say, I'm the one you're persecuting? Because 
as a church, we are so united with Jesus that He's called the head and we're the body. So that if people oppose us, they are opposing the King Himself. If they come and hurt us, they're hurting the King Himself. But it also works the other way around. That if they hurt Jesus and oppose Jesus, then they're also going to hurt and oppose His body, the church. If Jesus suffered as the head, the church will suffer as the body. And boy betcha, His body was thrashed and ripped and beat on the cross. So what do we expect from the church? We expect us to go through the same kind of things in God's story. It's going to be beat, hurt, and thrashed. But, like the bones of Jesus that were never broken, the church will be hurt, it will be persecuted, it will be bruised, but the church will never be broken. So we, as we're persecuted, are exhibiting, are displaying the sufferings of Jesus as He hung on the cross to bring restoration to all people. Put it to you like this. It's in um, Colossians one twenty four. Paul says, I rejoice, same guy who's converted here, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am willing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Okay, what Paul just said there is very troubling. I'm willing to suffer to fill up what's lacking in Jesus' sufferings. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus' sufferings on the cross weren't enough and that you and I have to go suffer to complete what he couldn't complete. That's not what Paul means when he says, I'm fulfilling the sufferings of Jesus. Paul is saying instead... That what's lacking in the sufferings of Jesus is the message of his suffering to people. And I suffer as a messenger of the suffering that he did. In other words, I am exhibit A when I suffer of what Jesus did for people. I am an example of his suffering love of restoration for all people. So when I suffer, I show them what Jesus did for them. To put it in John Piper's words, he says that God intends for the afflictions of Jesus to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. So, what all this is saying is that the means of bringing the gospel is the same as the message of the gospel. We bring the gospel of restoration to people the same way that Jesus accomplished the gospel of restoration for people. So as he accomplished it through suffering, the church spreads and exhibits the word through suffering. So that as we willingly partake abuse from people for the sake of Christ, they are seeing what Jesus did for all people So what that means is, simply put, when we participate in God's story and we participate in the persecution part, we don't participate participate as persecutors, we participate as a persecuted. We don't do what Saul did. 
well, there's a lot of people that don't believe in the gospel of the Jews and our story, so let's kill them, let's get rid of them. We don't do what Islam does. There's a bunch of infidels on the planet. So get rid of them so that the world is Islamic. And I'm not poking fun. This is factual what they think. Their idea of spreading their story is by forcing it on people. And what this tells us is that persecution is the way we give the message. We don't force it on people. We live the message through our sufferings. Because that's what Jesus did. So, why don't you flip to Matthew 5, verse 38, and I'll give you what Jesus said about it in his words. I want you to think about how the world talks about spreading business plans or their promotions or their, I don't know what I'm trying to say, agendas, their religions, their all their other things, compared to how Jesus tells us to be. Matthew 5, 38. You heard that it was said... An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your other cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. Now, he kind of explains in other language, not metaphor this time, about what he was saying in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on. And says that in that way you'll be perfect as your father is perfect in heaven. So what Jesus says is that his story is not spread by beating the nations into restoration. But by bleeding for the nations restoration. We spread God's story through suffering. Now, I want to finish with a story that when we participate in persecution, it brings restoration to people. I told you that it expands restoration and exhibits it. That God purposes persecution to progress His gospel and His story. Well, I read, by the way, it's a book I would recommend. Um, but I read some time ago a book called Desiring God by John Piper. And he had a chapter on suffering, which was the best I'd ever read. It really got me rethinking the place of suffering on this planet. And I want to read a story that he tells in that book. Um, he actually takes it from another book, so I'm double-citing here. I'm citing a book that's citing another book. So, follow that. It's a book by, called The Persecutor by a guy named Sergei, who was part of the secret police in Russia. And the secret police in Russia commissioned them, or Russia commissioned the secret police, whom Sergei was a part of, to go and hunt down Christians in prayer meetings and abuse them until they gave up their faith. And so he writes his autobiography. He eventually became saved, uh, was no longer persecuting Christians, a lot like Paul. And this is what he writes. Um, just a couple clips here. So he says, I saw Victor, Victor's one of his 
officers with him. I saw Victor reach and grab for a young girl named Natasha who is trying to escape to another room. So they burst into a prayer gathering and the Christian was like, ah, oh, and they grabbed this one girl named Natasha who's trying to escape. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer. Well, Victor caught her, picked her above his head, so held her up, and held her as high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't, dear God, help us. And Victor threw her so hard, she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown. And then she dropped to the floor, semi-conscious, moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. And they all laughed. Now, some time later, they come storming into another prayer meeting, and they saw Natasha again, rather surprised that she's still going to prayer meetings. And so he says, Sergei says, I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, Natasha, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she had been at the other prayer meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I had first remembered. A very beautiful girl with long, flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, and smooth skin. One of the most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. I picked her up and flung her down on the table face down. Uh, then one of my men held her down and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister and I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off on my hand. She moaned, but fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cries, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her backside was a mess of raw flesh, I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. Then, they raided yet another prayer meeting, and guess who was there? Yet again. There she was again! Natasha! They, they couldn't believe that. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex, another one of his officers, moved toward Natasha. Hatred filling his face. He raised a club above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor... Victor is the guy who beat her the first time, who threw her against the wall. Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on, and shouted, Get out of my way! Uh, sorry, Alex shouted at Victor, Get out of my way so I can beat her! Well, Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. Meanwhile, Sergei says, I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. 
He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor, and angered, Alex shouted, You want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her. Nobody. And for one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. But here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. And I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. And Sergei saw her exhibit restoration through the persecution, later get saved, and he says this. He says, finally, to Natasha, whom I beat terribly and was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me, and I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. And that is much like Saul's case here. He turns from persecutor of the church to preacher for the church. And you have to wonder, how does that dramatic change happen unless he watched God's people go willingly through persecution and exhibit something, a restoration they have that Saul didn't have. And it was glaring and it was obvious. He was the guy who sat there and watched Stephen get stoned to death. He's the guy who watched families get torn apart. Believers get thrown into prison, whipped, flogged, some even put to death, he claims later. He watched it all because the church was willing to participate in persecution. Restoration progressed. The church exploded. It reached Rome. It reached the ends of the earth. And it reached Saul. And so, believers, I want us to see the place of persecution in God's story as God's purpose to progress His gospel of restoration to all people. And that when we participate in persecution, not as the persecutors, but as the persecuted, as we turn the other cheek, as we walk the extra mile with our persecutors, as those who take our cloak, we give extra cloaks to them, as we love and pray for our enemies, what happens is they see us exhibit what Jesus did for us. And they become convinced that God's story is real and they want to be part of the story that we're part of. So God purposes persecution 
even on his people, for the progression of his story to all peoples. Father, I pray that you would embolden your people here, change our minds and thoughts about suffering so that we can be ready and willing participators in your story if you so choose to use us that way. And again, we pray for your church around the world going through this today. We offer our prayers to them that your spirit would fill them with strength and that many would see your restoration for them through your persecuted church. So fill us with your spirit to do this, we pray. Amen.